Well, if you haven't already, I want to invite you to turn again in your Bibles to John chapter 12. I'm going to be preaching the passage that Ruth read for us this morning. I'm going to try to cover verses 34 to 43. And again, and by way of a title, if you didn't see it on social media, if you want me to try and encapsulate this passage in three particular segments, you'll see it in verses 34 down to, I think it is 36, and then you'll see another passage from 37 down to 40 or 41, and then you see another section from 41 to 44. And basically, I can break it down like this. You get a bright offer, you get a dark rejection, and you get a blind allegiance. And this is what we are facing with today, not just in this passage, in our lives here in St. John's, Newfoundland today. Everywhere you look, you will see there's a bright offer. But everywhere you turn and look, you will see dark rejection. And for every one of you in here that claims to be a Christian, I would say we all have to be warned and careful in January of 2021 of a blind allegiance. I want to say again, it is not my desire as your senior pastor to ever teach or model to you to be religious. I, I, I actually despise it. I want more than anything for my life to be known of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. And all through John, you will see the difference between a relationship and a religion. But let me just back up because the last two weeks have been very unique for this planet, or at least for the continent we call North America. It has been an interesting 14 days, not only politically, economically, in regards to our global pandemic, but even in my life, it's been a bit of a crazy roller coaster ride over the last two weeks. It's been, I think, almost six years since I had to go to an emergency and got to see the inside of the Health Science Emergency Center last week. And... Um, yeah, and if I don't see it again for another six years, I won't complain. I do thank you for your prayers. I thank you for your texts and emails and encouragement. But the one thing when you're about to have a birthday this week and then you have these issues with your blood pressure and your heart is you become acutely aware that you are not in charge of your life and how much you depend on an almighty God to give you health and strength. And yet, we've also had U.S. politics, and we probably had things happen in the last two weeks in the United States that many of you, if not every one of you, has a fairly strong opinion about, and many of us have never seen in our lifetime. Wherever you fall on the spectrum, all of these things were shocking, and I'm, I don't care where you are on the conservative things or anything, but to see the types of things, the vitriol types of things that we are seeing in politics, social media, newspapers, and all these things, for Christians, it should break our heart. And then there's all of the national and global news of the global pan pandemic. There's all the things about the vaccine and is it rolling out fast enough or not fast enough? How much of it was wasted? We now have a called election. Then there's the global variants of COVID-19. And God has taught us all, I think, several things on several fronts. But you know, in the midst of all the chaos, the uncertainty, the fear, the anger, the division, then from out of nowhere... Every now and then, God gives you a voice. And this last couple of weeks, there's been a voice, a strange voice, a voice you have heard before. 
a voice that broke through the noise of social media. For over the last two Thursdays, the voice of Jonathan Troke has spoken on social media. A.K.A. Chocolate, who usually plays the bass up here at the front. And the reason why many of you are shocked is because, like me, you've not heard his voice much. But on Thursday night with Steve Da, there he was. My friend, my fellow laborer in the ministry, Chocolate. Because he's smooth. He's just always smooth. That's why I call him that. But him and Steve were talking about theology. And one of the things that jumped out at me when I was watching John and Steve talk is John made a couple of very interesting statements. He talked about his own testimony. He talked about how Jesus saved him. And he talked about having an aha moment or that it was like a, it was a light bulb moment. And that jumped out at me in light of our scripture, pardon the pun, of John chapter 12, verses 34 to 43. It's a fitting analogy. It's a fitting illustration because Jesus is going to refer to light being offered to the crowd around him. The passage also reminds us of dark times. It's interesting, isn't it? How much our world actually has a bunch of sayings where we pit light versus darkness. I mean, think about how we live and how we talk, right? How many of us have heard in the last seven days or the last two weeks, we are in dark times. These are dark days. There are dark days ahead. How many of you kind of heard maybe he or she has a dark heart? And we also like the idea of there's brighter days ahead. We heard that in one of our news conferences here in Newfoundland and Labrador just in the last seven days. That there are brighter days ahead for Newfoundland. And what about this one? The famous Annie song with her great thing, the sun will come up tomorrow. Do you ever notice how often we pit these two types of things, light and darkness? And all through this passage, we are going to come to the conclusion of Jesus' public ministry. That's what John's laying out for us. These, by the way, are his last public words. If you caught it as Ruth was reading it, it tells us that he hid himself from this point onward until his very public crucifixion. And then John is going to explain what happens if you don't respond to Jesus' passionate plea. In fact, John's even going to go further. He's going to tell us, even when we don't respond, you can't stop the plans of God. In fact, not only can you not stop the plans of God, the opposite is true. You're actually, even when you think you're running from God, you're actually still fulfilling his plan. That's how powerful and majestic he is. Finally, in our passage, we're also going to see the danger of seeking the glory of men over the glory of God. And I pray that that will always keep you and I from the type of deep and meaningful relationship that sometimes we look to but we'll never find. Because the only true deep and meaningful relationship you can find is with Jesus. And so here to this Sunday and then the last Sunday of January, we're going to finish up John chapter 12 called, if you're taking notes, the first half of this book gospel is called the book of signs, chapter 1 to 12. It's where Jesus has had all kinds of conversations with people, disciples, a Samaritan woman, a Jewish Pharisee named Nicodemus, crowds, Greeks have come. They've all come to Jesus, conversed with him. They've all witnessed his power and his signs. Have you remembered what you've learned? Have you been a part of this church? All the way back in John chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. He healed an official son. 
He healed a man that had been paralyzed at the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. He fed 5,000 men, then walked on water, calmed that water, I might add, had Peter come out and walk on the water with him. And then John gives us these two final signs, both that had never been done before in all of human history, and as far as I know, have never been repeated in human history. And that was the healing of a man born blind, and finally, the raising of Lazarus from the dead after he had been dead and buried for four days. Oh, and by the way, coupled with those seven signs in these 12 chapters, we've also had Jesus make some incredible statements. And from the youngest of you to the oldest, you've got to make a decision about what you're going to do with these claims of Jesus. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the one who will give you satisfaction. He says, I am the light of the world. He pleaded with the nation of Israel when he said that he was also the door by which they could find the kingdom. And then coupled that with saying that he was the good shepherd. And he was the good shepherd, not just in a name, but the good shepherd of the sheep. Probably most amazingly, as he told Mary and Martha, as they were grieving death, feeling the sting of death, sensing that they were powerless to stop it, and in the midst of all that pain and grief and agony, he would look at them with the listening disciples and crowd and say, by the way, I am the resurrection and the life. And all of this is laid out with one purpose in mind. And I don't want you to ever get away with it. You remember that Matt John, at the end of his gospel in John chapter 20, will say, Now Jesus did many other signs besides the seven I just told you about. Turning water into wine, walking on the water, having Peter do that, raising this one, healing that one, all of this. John says, look, Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book, but these are written. I chose these seven so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God. So that's the conclusion that you're supposed to come to. Every one of you. John has one thing and purpose in mind. He said, basically, look, I want to give you, lay out the evidence that Jesus is the Christ. And to prove it, I'll give you seven things that he did that no human could do, two of which no human has ever done. And he hasn't even gotten to Jesus raising from the dead yet. And then basically he says, look, when I lay this out, you were to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But I love it. It doesn't leave you there. He says, and if you believe that, you will have life in his name. Now, I don't know about you, but the one thing I'm also acutely aware of in 2021, after a quarter of a century of pastoral ministry, I spend more of my time today trying to help people navigate through anxiety, depression, meaning, identity, fear, anger, frustration than ever before. And the reason is, is because everybody is looking for something or someone and we're now living it in millisecond time frames because of social media, that we are all missing something. And when you don't see what you're supposed to see and you don't turn to the one you're supposed to turn to, then you will not have life. In fact, you'll have the opposite of life. You will feel like life is being sucked out of you.
And that is the world today. And I know that some of us maybe get nervous and even discouraged because Christianity is not popular right now. But I actually get excited. Not because I'm a masochist or I can't wait to go to jail or suffer, because I don't. The one thing I learned over this last week, I don't like pain. One thing I had forgotten about that I don't like, I don't like needles. Do you know how hard it is to look tough and yet turn away when you don't want to watch the needle get put in your arm? That's really difficult. You know, you had to kind of act like you were looking at something and still talk with a lot of confidence, even though you're like, please be over, please be over. But here's why I'm excited. Not because I'm tough, not because I'm strong. Here's why I get excited. You know why? Because now more than ever in my lifetime, it actually means something to be a Christian. And it's getting more and more obvious what a true Christianity is and what fake Christianity is. And I don't know about you, but I love that. It's everywhere in this. So for you and I, all right, I'm not even at this passage, all right? I want you to stop for a minute. I want to ask you, okay, according to John's purpose statement, what Ruth read for us this morning, do you believe this online and at home? Do you believe this? Do you know Jesus? Like, stop playing games. Stop playing church. Again, my buddy, buddy, uh, Jeff, who took over my ministry in PEI, I love what he used to say. He'd say, man, if church is your hobby, you got a lousy hobby. Do you believe this? Do you trust Jesus with your life? Do you see him as creator and savior and lover of your soul? Is he the one who knows you? Everything about you. The one who has plans for you. The one, Jesus, who gives you your identity. Who, by the way, young ladies especially, Jesus makes you valuable, not men. The one who is willing and able to forgive you. The one who you can go to. The one who you can pray to and seek help from and get power and perspective from. The one, Jesus, who always tells you the truth. The one who will always point you in the right direction. The one who will never leave you alone. The one who walks you through your own failures. The one who forgives your sin and your poor choices. The one who is always there for you to come to. The one who gives you grace when bad things happen to you. The one who helps you mature and overcome your foolishness. This is Jesus. Jesus and only Jesus can make sense of all the evil in this world. It's only Jesus who can give you hope when you're struggling or afraid or angry or bitter or feel selfish or proud or tired or bullheaded. When you're confused, Jesus is patient. He's gentle. He's kind. He's kind to give you answers. He'll help you navigate your doubts. Jesus and only Jesus can motivate you to wrestle with your weaknesses Now let's get really personal. Only Jesus can help you fight for your marriage. Only Jesus will ever help you endure raising your kids. Only Jesus will help you submit to your boss or forgive your mom or dad or love your enemy. Only Jesus can empower you to let go of your stuff right down to your life. And why? Because only Jesus can help you. And I understand what matters and what lasts. Only Jesus shows us that vengeance never satisfies, that bitterness only hurts, not, hurts us and not the ones we're angry at, that justice never fills the hole in our hearts. 
And we are so tired all the time. And you know why? Because we're a culture and a world so confused and divided today because we are more weak and even more. Not only are we weak, we embrace it. And we make it our identity. So I don't struggle with depression. I am a depressed person. That's the world we live in today. It's not I've experienced abuse. I am abused. I am divorced. I am angry. And because too many people choose to listen to Satan, the world, and even themselves, instead of Jesus. Now you might say, Steve, yeah, it's not hard to tell. You've had two weeks off because you're pretty wound up. And how can you know all this? Well, I'm glad you asked. John chapter 12, verses 34 to 43 gives us the proof. John the Apostle, by the inspiration from God, shows us in this passage, if you refuse to believe in Jesus, then this is what happens. But he also explains that God is still in control. God's plans still is in progress and it can't be stopped. So this passage is a warning. Make no mistake about it. There is a warning here. This passage is challenging. But this passage is meant to invite us. It's to call us. It's to give us more wonder and to prompt more worship. So look at it with me. Starting in verse 34, if you're writing notes, here it is. Jesus makes his final offer. Jesus makes his final offer. Look at verse 34. Now the crowd comes to him and they question Jesus. Now we have heard, they said, from the law that the Christ remains forever. So how can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And notice this, who is this Son of Man? Now, I want you to make sure you hear the tense of this. They're not being genuine in their inquisition. They're mocking him. They're daring him. They're they're challenging him. This question is prompted because of Jesus' bold proclamation in verses 30 to 33. Go back and look at verse 30. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Don't forget that as we read our passage, okay? One of the things that fascinates me about this is that if you notice in the question in verse 34, the crowd ignores the warning and the judgment. They don't ask about, well, what do you mean that now the rule of the world is judged and, and now the world is judged? What you, they just go right to, yeah, we got a problem there with you saying that Messiah has to die. You, you see, this is what the world does. The world will ignore what they should ask about and ask what they should never ask about. And I find that fascinating. Instead, they nitpick over their perceived weakness in Jesus' claim. And you see, here's the reason why that happens. Because Jesus' plan wasn't their plan. And in case you guys haven't figured it out, Jesus' plan is very rarely our plan. If you want to ever have coffee with me and ask me about my life, I can tell you over and over again how God's plan for me has not been my plan for me in so many ways. Jesus' plan is rarely ever our plan. And it's not because we're weak or we're dumb. 
It's because we just don't know ourselves. I remember growing up, one of my youth pastors used to say this, and every day that I get older, the more right he is, the hardest thing you'll ever do in life is be honest with yourself. Let me say that again. The hardest thing you're ever going to do is be honest with yourself. Why do you feel what you feel? Why do you want what you want? Why do you think what you want is going to make you happy or fulfill you? See, we so often just lurch from thing to thing. I need, I want, I must have. But very few of us ever ask, why do I feel this way? What am I looking for? You see, Jesus' plan so often from our perspective doesn't seem to meet the narrative we have set for ourselves or those around us. And you know why? Because we can only see and feel in the here and now. You and I are trapped in our moment-by-moment life. I feel the pain now. Just make the pain go away now. Whatever it takes to make the pain go away now. And we don't realize, but what I do now may affect my tomorrow or my next week, or my next month, or my next year. And what's even more amazing is that Jesus makes them an offer. Well, quite frankly, he baffles the wise and invites the foolish. Because in this offer, you have to admit, "Um, I need help. I can't. I don't have all the answers. John Piper says this, Jesus baffled proud scribes with his wisdom, but was understood and loved by children. He calmed a raging storm with a word, but would not get get himself down from the cross. You see, there's moments that we all in this room feel somewhat nostalgic and emotionally attached to that, but have you ever stopped and thought about what that means? What's your view of yourself? You see, Jesus once again ignores their question because it's not a valid one. Jesus instead offers them what they needed most, himself. Did you notice? They want to have a theological debate about whether or not he's the Messiah. Jesus totally ignores it. He totally ignores it. And for those of you that are Christians, when you're trying to go out and witness to the world, and so often you get nervous and you feel, I can't talk about my faith because I can't ask her, answer all of the little nitpicky questions that your friends or your fellow students or your neighbors or your unsaved brother or sister or whatever. Listen, you just need to get going with, what are you going to do with what you do know? What are you going to do with what you do know? They wanted triumph and freedom from Rome. They wanted their best life now. They wanted the Messiah as they imagined him to be their savior. And do you see what he does? And do you see what this does? You see, when you only want Jesus on your terms, you end up looking for a savior to save you from what you can't save yourself from, but you still want to be in charge. Do you catch that? So you're like, okay, Jesus, I need you because I'm unhappy, I'm miserable, I can't fix something. Oh, but by the way, I want to tell you how to fix me. Are you, are you getting a view of yourself now? This is what the Bible does. It makes you look into the mirror. And you see, you want to still be in charge. And this makes me laugh because I've done it too. I know I'm weak. I know I need help. But I want to be in charge of my help. And so in verses 34 to 36, Jesus passionately calls the crowd to guess what? Faith. 
Notice, five times in verses 35 and 36, Jesus uses the word light. Notice it. Look at our passage. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. I don't know about you, but I get this feeling Jesus wants them to have, as John said to Steve, a light bulb moment. Aha, aha, an aha moment. To walk by the light is to believe in the light. And what happens if you believe in the light? You go in the direction that the light shows you, right? If you put one of those big headbands on with the big light on it because you're out camping. This, will be, this is Jeff's love, love, love story now. Um, when you're out camping and you got your big LED light that can, you know, I, I think you can see it from space. But it is pointless to have that light on your forehead if you're not going to go or not go where that light says, this is safe, that's dangerous. This is what Jesus is telling them. If you, if you walk by the light, you got to believe in the light. you got to go in the direction the light shows you. Jesus is, of course, pointing to himself, right? The time is important. In other words, grace... Now, now listen to me, especially you young people. Listen to me. Grace, salvation, the gospel is endless, but it's not timeless. For any of you here that are playing with Christianity, flirting with it, understand that the offer of the gospel is endless, but there is a time limit. Jesus is calling this crowd and he's saying, stop trusting your religion. Stop trusting yourselves. Stop trusting the culture. Believe in me. I'm the light of the world. But notice the last thing from these verses. John wants you and I to see something very important. Just as someone who is physically blind doesn't know where they're going. If you know anybody, and I've, I've known several people in my life that have been completely blind. They have no idea where they're going. They have no idea what's ahead of them. What's in danger to them? They are perpetually in darkness. They honestly have to constantly live their life feeling around or depending on someone to say there's danger there. There's danger there. So is the person who is spiritually blind. You are in darkness. You don't know where you're going. You're confused. Oh, you're looking. You're groping. You're listening. You need help. But you want to be in charge. And then add to the urgency of time. And again, make the next verses powerful. John tells us this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Now, that's both amazing to me and frightening. Because you know what's worse than when Jesus is making you feel uncomfortable and convicting you? Is when Jesus is not making you uncomfortable and not convicting you. Read about it in Romans chapter 1. Three times Paul tells us that God gave them up to something. Three times God, Paul says, if you keep refusing him, you will actually get what you're looking for. But notice what Jesus does next. Because, listen, if you know that Jesus 
is no longer there to woo you or to open your eyes or to convict you or to prod you. When Jesus hides himself from you, I want you to realize, then you are truly both hopeless and helpless. I don't think we say this enough in our churches in the 21st century because we don't like to be uncomfortable. But look at what happens next in verses 37 to 41 because the people make their prophesied rejection. The people make their prophesied rejection. Now, I don't know how many times I've started my sermon at some point with John 20, verses 30 and 31. Anyone want to hazard a guess? I can tell you this is sermon number 63 for me in getting to the end of John chapter 12. And all 63 times I have read John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, which is the purpose statement. These things have I recorded, right, that you may believe. Now, here in these verses, you've got the anti-purpose statement. Notice what it says in our passage. Though he had done, verse 37, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. That's the opposite of 20, verse 30. So John's saying, I've written, so you would believe. But halfway through his gospel, he tips his hand and says, now these signs were done, and they would not believe. And I don't want you to miss this, because this is not saying that people won't get saved. Remember back in verse 32, Jesus said, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to me. God promises to build his church. God has promised Jesus a reward for his, for his obedience. Dustin Benju says, When you proclaim Jesus is Lord, you're automatically in opposition with the world, the flesh, and the devil. So you got to realize that. There is no way for you to go, Jesus is Lord. Hey, handshake, world. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And that's why John is doing what he's doing. He's reminding us of the power of the cross in two fronts. The power of the cross is it saves and it judges. So we can be assured that folks are going to come to Jesus because God promises he will save. But the warning is still there from God too. That people are going to reject him. Do you remember that story in, John cha- in Luke chapter 16 of the rich man and Lazarus? Remember how the rich man had everything and the poor guy named Lazarus used to beg at the entrance. And they both die and one goes to heaven and one goes to hell. And then we're told of the story of a conversation that happens of the rich man in hell. And he begs Father Abraham that someone would go back and tell his five brothers. And then he says... Abraham says to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Now, by the way, if you read that in your New Testament, that's just a sentence for they have the Bible. When when anytime someone says they have Moses and the prophets, it's basically a term for they've got the word of God. They've got the scriptures. They've got the things that Moses and the prophets wrote. He goes, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If you do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, if I had a laugh track here, this is where I'd fired up. Because you realize when Jesus is talking about this, he's going to raise a guy from the dead who's been dead for four days. 
In fact, I challenge you to go read the Gospels and read almost everywhere where Jesus actually performs a miracle of raising someone from the dead. Almost every single time, there's some form of laughter, scorn, and disbelief. Now, I don't know about you, but I, don't, I, I think I'm pretty tough. But if I went to a funeral home where I was getting ready for a funeral and the person in the casket has been dead for three days. And then while I'm in there getting ready, the dude sits up and looks at me and goes, whoa, Steve, I'm back. (laughs) I'm pretty sure I'm going to need an adult diaper. All right, I'm, I'm pretty confident that that would freak me out. And yet in the Bible, when this happens, people laugh, people scorn. And so this is what's happening. John wants us to tell us this rejection has been foretold. This is what happens when you don't trust the light, when you refuse to listen to Jesus, when you will not submit your agenda to the gracious, merciful plan of God. Now think about it. Think about it. How many books, how many documentaries, how many movies, how many things of evidence exist for the person and work of Jesus Christ in our world today? Thousands. Thousands. I was saying to the boys when I was studying for this that I often thought that John's statement in John chapter 21 when he says, I suppose that if all the things done by Jesus were written down, that the books of the world couldn't contain it. The older I get, the more I realize that's not an exaggeration at all. More stuff has been written about Jesus. But who? Who in all of human history has been both defended or explained or attacked more than Jesus? Just like John has been telling us, there are really only two groups of people in the world. Those who love Jesus and those who hate him. Those are your only options. In fact, John concludes the book of signs the way he began his gospel. In John chapter 1, he says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, now watch this, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. (laughs) And I find it fascinating, because in our passage, John quotes Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53. He uses the prophet to prove his claim but to actually attach it to the plan of God. He wants you and I know, God has always known this was going to happen. Almost a thousand years before this took place, God told Isaiah, I am going to put you on a mission. Read Isaiah chapter 6. God, Isaiah gets a vision of the throne room of heaven. God sends an angel to take a coal off the fire of the, of the altar and touch his lips. And he says, I'm a man of unclean lips. And the call goes out, who will go and who will I send? And then Isaiah says, here am I, send me. And everybody loves that for missions, conferences, and a way to manipulate kids to go on short-term missions trips. And nobody finishes the chapter. Because if you actually read the second half of Isaiah... God tells Isaiah, I'm going to send you to people that are never going to listen. You're going to preach and they will reject. 
See, that doesn't work well at the missions conference. Hey, kids, come give your lives to Jesus. Nobody's going to listen. Right? This is what he does. And those tragic, troublesome words, do you see it in our passage? Could not believe. Now, listen to me. This is not John saying these people didn't have a choice. John is proving that left to your own wants and desires while refusing to respond to Jesus' call confirms and affirms your unbelief. John uses Isaiah's own encounter with God with this predicted rejection. That's why he quotes Isaiah 53. Who will believe our report? And this makes me smile. Because Isaiah saw the power, the majesty, and the glory of God in chapter 6. He understood the rejection of Jesus was not defeat. It wasn't doom, but rather this is all part of the plan. So John wants you and I to know, hey, the rejection of Jesus is the means by which we come to the glorification of Jesus. Jesus was born to die. That's what we celebrated last month. But Jesus had to be rejected and die so that we and he could be glorified and the offer of the gospel can be made to you and I. By the way, this is why Peter preaches what he does in Acts chapter 2. Men and women of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with what? Mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So there's the plan. Now watch this. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's human responsibility. It was all a part of the plan. And yet you still chose to do what you did. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Because, and I love this. It is not possible for Christ to be held by it. Do you see it? God's plan is interwoven into our lives, our choices, and the consequences of those choices. John wants us to see this stroke so strongly. Jesus is the Messiah, and you'll either trust him or reject him. And both of those responses actually fulfill Scripture and God's plan. So it doesn't matter. You can't stop it. Satan can't stop it. The world can't stop it. You can only trust them or reject them. And that's part of the plan. And so then you see lastly, very quickly, because I know my time is gone. In verses 41 to 43, you've got the dangers of seeking the wrong acceptance. And this is where I do want to talk to most people in this room. Especially you young people. Well, actually everybody. Notice what he says. John starts by saying, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. And then he immediately says, and there was a bunch of people that were fascinated by Jesus who actually said, I believe in him. But they were more concerned about acceptance and the glory of men more than the glory of God. Thomas Brooks said this, A man or woman may have enough of the world to sink him or her, but they can never have enough to satisfy them. I want you to take that with you now. You can't have it both ways, young people. You can't say, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I have a Bible, 
I'm conservative. I listen to Joe Rogan or Ben Shapiro, whatever. But then say, but I still want the acceptance of the world. I still want the world's approval. I still want to be liked by the world. That's not how it works. Isaiah didn't have a glory issue. Why? Because he had seen the glory of Jesus. He spoke of it. He focused on it. He meditated on it. And it's hilarious to me because God calls Isaiah and then says, by the way, I'm sending you on a mission where nobody's going to believe. In a couple of weeks, Adam is going to preach about Jonah, who had the opposite mission. Okay, Jonah was was told, go witness to a bunch of people. Everybody's going to believe. And Jonah sulked. So Isaiah is sent to preach... And no one's going to believe. Jonah is sent and told everybody's going to believe. And guess what? In both cases, if you read about it, both people sucked. And this is the problem. Why do we chase after greatness on earth when we're promised thrones in heaven? This is what John is doing. And so you'll do this when your eyes are on this life and this world. When you don't think about God and you don't think about the gospel. When you don't think about the price that was paid for your sin. The cost of your salvation. When you're too busy to count your blessings. Then you won't be able to help yourself. You're going to start staring at your life. You'll start needing and looking for approval, value, identity and acceptance from people or substances or institutions. You'll worry about who's liked your status or followed you on Twitter or Instagram. Or who unfollowed you or who didn't comment and God says really that's what gives you value a little thumb like that when he says I I spoke you into existence and sent my son for you I'm the one who gives you glory that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 1 blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he or she meditates day and night. And so, very quickly, what are you supposed to do with all this? Because I've rambled long enough, and my voice is hurting. Number one, take care of your present opportunities. The gospel is timeless, or sorry, endless, but not timeless. You see, the crazy thing is, Many of you in this room would say to me in a private conversation, Steve, I don't want people to go to hell and I want people to believe in God. But here's my question. Do you believe in hell and do you believe in God? Because I would suggest that how much you believe in hell and you believe in God will determine how much you don't want other people to go to hell and how much you want people to believe in God. What scares me is not the fact that we have the right theology. Because I think our church does. What scares me is I'm not sure how much we believe the right theology. And so you might say, well, Steve, this is a pretty hard passage. And you don't know. Maybe I'm not chosen. Or I'm not one of the elect. Maybe I'm one of those planned rejection people. Well, listen to me. I've never met the sinner who comes to God who God didn't want. If you will just come to him. Thomas Watson once wrote... God is more willing to pardon than to punish, and mercy does more multiply in him than sin in us. So will you come to him? 
And Christian, this passage should motivate you and challenge you. It should be what drives you, the glory of God and the souls of humanity. If we believe this and trust this, this will drive Calvary Baptist Church to evangelism. It should be the motto of our church in Mile One Mission because you can't start churches without new believers and we're never going to have a living, growing, maturing church without new believers. And if all we are is about being the boys club or the girls club or the boys and girls club, that's not the word of God. Secondly, Take notice of the hardness of the human heart. It's actually predicted that people are going to reject God. Barnabas Piper, the son of John Piper, who just was ordained into ministry. If you haven't had a chance to read his story, by the way, you really should. This kid ran from God, and now he's a pastor at Emmanuel, where Ray Ortland Jr. was the pastor. And he says, one of the most insidious effects of the fall is that pain and betrayal are nearly impossible to forget in full, while happiness and comfort are nearly impossible to remember in full. That's because our hearts are so hard. The heart of each of us, it can't be trusted. And worse, if if we get to hearing the word of God, singing the songs, coming to church, and nothing changes, you simply live life, then Jeremiah comes to pass. Our heart is desperately wicked, and who can know it? And that Jesus, God says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. The answer to this question, who can know it, is always and only Jesus Christ. You and I can't break a heart. Only the gospel can. And so we got to realize that. By the way, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, write it down. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Just so you know, that is not an evangelism verse to be used for non-Christians. Oh, you must get saved because now is the day of salvation. This verse is written to Christians. Paul is telling a church Now is the time for you to start living out the gospel in words and deed. Read the next few verses. I beg of you, I don't have time to do it right now. Read what Paul says after this. And then finally, take caution against being accepted by the world. Oh, young people, listen. I know it's tough. In university, in school, starting out in jobs... Social media and politics is making everything harder. I get it. But I promise you this. If you will give your life to Jesus, it is worth it. Because this life is not as good as it gets. Getting a handshake or a hug or a pat on the back from someone that says, I like you because you believe like me is a friendship that's a mile wide and an inch deep. Be careful about wanting to be accepted by the world. You know, everybody loves that wonderful hymn. This is the irony of the world. Everybody, even the world, loves amazing grace, right? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton was a murdering, rapist, racist who God gloriously saved. You don't really hear about that part of his story in life. One of my favorite statements from him is this. I am not what I ought to be, and I am not what I want to be, and I am not what I hope to be in another world, but I still am not what I once used to be, and by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's worth embracing, young people. 
By the way, that's worth embracing older people. You will always have doubts. And you will always doubt your values, your convictions, your opinions, your desires, your hopes, your dreams. Until you have brought them before the powerful, glorified word of God. And you're going to have to do that over and over and over again. Come to the light. Be guided by the light. Trust God. It's the light of Jesus and his word and prayer. Because Jesus died he is, is the power, the kingdom, and the glory forever. Amen. Sola de gloria indeed. Now, which one will you be? Will you believe or reject? Because you're going to choose. But God will be God no matter what. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I pray, I beg of you that my friends and family have heard a better sermon than I can preach. God, you know how weighty this passage has been on my heart. I even wondered a week ago if the weight of this passage is what drove my own physical blood pressure up. But I have asked you in 2021 to be passionate and brave about what the Bible says, not about what I think I want it to say. And I want to stand before my wife and my children and my grandchildren and my church brothers and sisters and friends and family that tune in or attend. And I want to simply open up this Bible and say, here's the truth. Because, Lord, the truth of the matter is in my lifetime, only you have ever satisfied me. Only you have ever given me peace. Only you have ever given me meaning. And I know because I've looked for it in a lot of other places. So, Lord, help the men and women here. I know with COVID we can't do traditional things. And, Lord, I know because of the time and I've preached too long. But I pray, Holy Spirit of the living God, if any man or woman or young person is struggling or troubled or needs prayer or has been on the fence or playing house with you, that they would be brave enough to listen to the soft and tender call of Jesus because Jesus is the Messiah. In Jesus' name, amen.